Every project starts out with a great idea, but no great idea survives first contact with reality. Implementation details get in the way, users have requests and opinions, and the worst part is, they're probably right. The first amazing idea turns into a second idea and a third idea and so on until it gets molded into something resembling a finished project. How does technical implementation and user feedback shape a solution? When is it time to make a significant change in your design? And how do you know you're headed in the right direction? Those are the topics we'll be discussing on this episode of Day 2 Cloud. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, part of the Packet Pushers family of podcasts. On Day 2 Cloud, we have a frank discussion of what happens when cloud stops being polite and starts getting real. This is episode 21. I'm your host, Ned Bellavance, Ned1313 on the Twitters. And joining me today for our discussion is Michael Frazier, co-founder and CEO of Refactor. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks for having me, Ned. Absolutely. And uh, just for listeners out there, Refactor is spelled R-E-F-A-C-T-R, right? No O in there. Correct. Yeah, we try to be cute about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's this weird, uh, like, opposite trend that I've seen with a few companies where they're adding more vowels back into yeah. their names. Well, we took them all out. Now we're going to add them all in. Uh, either way. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be on our next product. We'll have the we'll watch that battle. <laughs> yeah, no. Just a whole bunch of U's and, and, and W's. It'll look like it's Welsh or something. Who knows? Yeah, nice. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we get started, Mike, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your career in IT? Yeah, absolutely. So I started out in the Air Force, actually, as a uh, weapons specialist on F-15 aircraft doing electronic stuff. And I decided I wanted to get into cybersecurity. And so I pivoted into that before I left the Air Force. Uh, So I was a cybersecurity engineer. And then when I was out, I decided to start my own uh, different types of uh, cloud and uh, security startups. And so I've had multiple cloud and security startups. I've also had a, a stint in the uh, corporate world as well. And I'm back at it with a, uh, a startup again because I can't uh, get enough at trying to innovate. And it's funny because I started out on the, the op side and I went ended up going back to school to use my GI Bill from the Air Force before my time limit ran out. So I ended up getting a, an undergraduate uh, and a, a master's degree in computer science because I wanted to get back on the other side of it because I was like, well, I know all this op stuff, but I want to actually build software too. <laughs> Wow, so you're the one. You're one of the few people that made that pivot from ops into development. That's a, that's that's a significant change. How did that experience sort of inform what you wanted to build? Yeah, so as I was, I was doing a lot of consulting work and actually helping companies build their own their entire cloud offering from the ground up. And when I was doing that, I was brought in from the the technical side to help kind of be the visionary but then also having to figure out how to make it as a service for customers, realizing there was a lot of tools involved. Everybody wanted to have software built in front of everything because they wanted to make it their own. And the level of effort and the cost behind it was just so monumental. I started thinking, well, how could we possibly create this into a product that could actually get the result of having somebody like me involved in, in an engagement But also the fact that we were always dealing with multiple teams that were siloed in what they're doing. And then we had to share what we would build with these tools with other people. And also the, you know, the DevOps guy or the cloud architect or cloud security architect or anybody that's essentially getting in and 
building solutions for their stakeholders, it was, it was in my mind, like, how do we solve this and try to make this more of a automated process? I mean, we're, we're preaching automation by building within all these tools, but there's no cohesive way to deliver it to the, the stakeholders and then people just generally speaking. And then I, I also have experience in the uh, managed services arena. And I also saw a trend in managed services where we're getting towards a place where a lot of companies are looking for managed services to help them because of the fact that they don't have the bench of talent internally to be able to provide things. And it's only becoming more of an issue with cloud uh, and, and all the different automation tools that we have out there and obviously the security issues that are happening. So people are going, well, how do I solve all of this by uh, you know figuring out what to do in the cloud, but then also what to do with everything else against all these different APIs and all these tools. And so that's why we decided, I decided about three years ago to start uh, working towards developing a platform that was going to solve for that, which is what we called the uh, Cloud Plus Security Architect platform. Uh, as you can see, uh, I was trying to even utilize my uh, my title in the name of the product. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, a lot of what you speak to is just the incredibly complex nature of the cloud. I mean, like you said, you've got all these different APIs and a whole bunch of different ways to build out environments. You know, I see automation, people trying to embrace automation, but some of them are using just like CLI scripts to build. Others are using a tool like Terraform or even Ansible. And then yet others are just manually going about building things through some sort of runbook that they have in front of them, like a physical runbook, click here, do this. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of challenges there in terms of building a cloud environment and then also securing it and making sure you're meeting compliance requirements. And there's a whole bunch of tools out there. So are you saying, were you trying to like create a tool to manage the tools, like a toolbox sort of approach? Yeah. So interestingly enough, that came after the fact. So originally we were looking at wanting to be an overlay on an existing tool out there. So we were looking at Chef and we we're looking at, at Ansible and Puppet and we were trying to land on something where we could say, hey, let's not reinvent the tool that's already out there that has a, an amazing mm. customer base behind it. Let's look at what we could do to make that more valuable to the audience that we're catering to. And that's mostly uh, uh, service providers. And so, we're, and, and so because of that, we'd have to make it easier on the front end for them to utilize, but still be able to get the power of a tool like Ansible. So we ended up ended up uh, settling on Ansible because it was the easiest tool. We didn't also want to settle on any tool that was going to be locked to a single cloud provider. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to make sure that whatever we, we picked had the uh, widest breadth of, of capabilities so we could utilize it. And so that's what we ended up doing at first. But we ended up having an overlay on top of that. So we would map to Ansible modules. And so the user would actually be able to come in and and fill out a form, but they didn't actually have to create an Ansible playbook. So we would build that behind the scenes. Okay. And because of that, we found that a lot of companies are like, well, I've already built Ansible playbooks. I don't want to refactor these into your platform. <laughs> it's <laughs> what you're doing is cool, but you know, if I do anything complex, it's going to require a bunch of, you know, a high level of effort that I just don't have to deal with. And they said, well, let's, let's go back to the drawing board and look at what that just looks like from a product standpoint and say, all right, how could we have Ansible run natively and have it be something that that people could utilize to run their own scripts and payloads and everything else, but having full access to the container? Because if we give full access to 
or a container or whatever we're going to provide to them, if we give full access to that, we also have to think about it from a security standpoint. And so we looked at how we could structure what we were calling container sandboxing. And interestingly enough, I mean, people hear Kubernetes all the time out there, but Kubernetes is still relatively new uh, overall compared to a lot of other technologies out there, right? I mean, it's been around for what, about five years now, but actual right. adoption and people pushing hard on it and seeing like other people pushing, you know, large initiatives and, and uh, aside from Google. Um, but now that we have, you know, AKS and EKS and manage, you know, and then I think even like uh, uh, DigitalOcean has their own managed now. I mean, there's all kinds of other, other players getting into it too. So it becomes, we were looking at how could we utilize containers to solve this container sandboxing backend piece of it? So we were looking at containers because like, well, containers would be really awesome because we could we could lower the attack surface of what we could provide in a container. But what we found out is that hard multi-tenancy is not something that Kubernetes was originally built for. <laughs> what I mean by hard multi-tenancy is, you know, being able to have complete isolation at a container at a pod level. Uh, mm -hmm in a way that we can ensure that there was absolutely no communication anywhere else from there um, because we wanted to separate the back end to be able to essentially do all of the execution uh, from the, the front end, from the app side of it, so we could have the platform be completely isolated from these uh, container sandboxes. And so we looked at Kubernetes. We had some discussions with, with Google because we we're doing GKE at the time. And so we said, okay, we'll do GKE and we deployed CSAP in that. And then we found out that it was going to be a high level of development effort from a security standpoint to get the hard multi-tenancy we wanted. So mm -hmm. what, we, what we did is we went back and looked at the other options out there, uh, Fargate uh, and uh, Azure Container instances. And we were in the alpha of what is now cloud run at Google. But since it wasn't production, uh, we ended up settling on ACI uh, because of the, the, uh, the, the isolation of it and the fact that um, we also liked AKS, and so it, it mapped together really nicely. And so we settled on uh, AKS and ACI to build uh, Playbook.Cloud because we decided we wanted to build a product to prove out the technology first before we brought it back into our CSAP platform. And that's essentially why Playbook.Cloud exists. And so because of that, we also looked at functions to try to also do the same thing mm. what we found out is if we want to do use any of these tools out there and and you know one of the things out there that does this already like cloud shell and azure where they have ansible and terraform and the cli and so on and so forth all within a container we're like well we have to install those tools inside of something because we can't run them in functions i mean you could but uh, there's some certain things that we couldn't do and we needed longer time frames to be able to run, you know, playbooks and future state. We're looking at Terraform configs and other, even other security tools like Chef and Spec to be able to, you know, continue to add in additional tools meant that runtimes of the jobs are going to take longer and longer. And so that was the other piece of why we decided to land on container sandboxing. That's a lot of architecture information. I wanted to back it up a little bit and kind of get a feeling for what what was included in the initial CSAP. Because I know you mentioned Ansible, but I got to imagine there were other tools involved. So uh, you, you mentioned you wanted to avoid a cloud-specific tool. Like you didn't want to use, say, CloudFormation, right? Because that's an AWS-specific tool and that wouldn't work very well with Azure. And you, I'm sure there's other tools that you looked at. So how did you 
decide which tools to use or implement in CSAP initially? Was that a, like a customer uh, driven thing or did you just kind of like look at what was available and try to make a, uh, this is best of breed for what we're doing? We actually created our own custom, what we call components in the platform, but our own custom component that actually was multi-cloud. So we looked at all the core IaaS services. So all the networking components, all of the, you know, like virtual machine. And we, we, look, we looked at those and said, can we map those across all three clouds? We actually built our mm. own custom infrastructure pieces and then use Ansible for everything else. And so those were the two main things that we had in there. And what we found is, as we continued to add in additional ser- or, uh, components that were our, what we were calling our built-ins, the level of effort for every single one was was huge because we had to map every single option or feature from that. And then, you know, the different <laughs> nuances between the cloud providers. So it was, just, we started getting into the networking stuff. You're just like, oh, okay, well, in Azure, you, you, you can you can set rules a certain way in your, your, your VNAP, but in, in Google, you have to tag uh, and so on and so forth. So there's all these different <laughs> weird nuances. You're like, well, we can do this, but as soon as we simplify this, we limit the power and the capabilities around anything that you want to do custom to it. And so we ended up adding in functionality to cloud-specific uh, templating per cloud. And so we added that we actually were supporting CloudFormation, or still are, but CloudFormation, uh, Azure Resource Manager templates, and Google Deployment Manager templates, because we were like, well, we have to open this up to the entire cloud. But we didn't have the container sandboxing, because if we did, we would have put in, we would have done Terraform probably instead of doing cloud specific. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's one of the things that I, I see a lot of like multi-cloud type tool sets struggle with is that do we boil things down to the lowest common denominator? So every cloud has this construct and avoid all of those special bells and whistles that create that differentiation or do you embrace that differentiation? But then, like you said, that's a huge development workload for you to, you know, add all those check boxes for just the right cloud in just the right way. So it's, it sounds like you you decided to go a slightly different direction with that. Kind of to that point, but what we're seeing is there's more and more diversities as individual cloud providers' product sets. One good example of that is like Azure SQL as a service versus you know uh, AWS RDS and so on. So it becomes one of those things where, oh, okay, well, if I want to support that for the customer base, I now have to build customized services around that particular product offering and there has to be a demand for that, enough demand for that that makes sense. But then every single time we're level of effort is we're now focused on one product offering to be able to offer that. So if the cloud providers are doing that, the same way that we looked at Ansible saying, well, why would we want to reinvent an automation tool? Same thing from a cloud provider. They're already doing that from a templating perspective. So the majority of what they offer is available to be able to deploy it programmatically via the templating. And so that's why I honed on that. But we... <laughs> Knowing that there's limitations with that too, and you know stuff like if I want to do hybrid cloud with VMware, and so that's why a lot of companies are are moving towards you know using like uh, HashiCorp Terraform because of the fact that it gives you the capability of doing a much more you know a lot more providers giving you the ability to do hybrid type of deployments versus you know single cloud deployments. So if you're doing anything more than a single cloud, somebody most likely. People are using Terraform for that. Yeah, that does seem to be the the overriding consensus that I'm hearing. But your product's not intended to compete with Terraform, correct? You, you have no. a different vision in mind. Yep. Okay. So longer term, we, we actually will be supporting Terraform. So you can think about it as we support the existing tools that are out there as opposed to let's try to compete 
against any of the tools that are out there. Okay. And I think, so when you initially decided to build out CSAP, the initial architecture, was that container-based from the beginning? Or did you start with virtual, like traditional IaaS virtual machines and then sort of move on to different uh, deployment architectures? Yeah, no, we, we started the uh, the old school monolithic way and it was easiest <laughs> for us because we were like, we, we just want to get this up and running and prototype it. Right. We did use Ansible for our building our own little CI, CD type pipeline to be able to do things there ourselves. But from a standpoint of starting out, we were, I mean, the, the other piece of it was we were starting on some different frameworks uh, that were just really good for on VMs. And they didn't even have any deployments, as far as I know, at the very beginning, we started on containers. And so we're just like, let's not even go that direction. Let's just keep it simple, uh, get uh-huh. our product out there. And then we can decide if we want to go to uh, containers. And one of the other driving factors behind us going to Kubernetes is that we wanted our platform to be able to be deployable on multiple cloud providers, but also in a way that we could push out updates to particular services that we have built out in our platform without having to say, oh, you need to update your entire appliance. And then also, hey, look, you should start embracing containers because that's where the future is anyway. And if we can give that to people to do, hey, why not? (laughs) Very cool. I keep hearing Kubernetes referred to as a platform for platforms. Uh, And it almost (laughs) sounds like this is a perfect case of that, where you're using Kubernetes as a platform to build your platform, to build a SaaS on top of it. Is that, would that be accurate? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, (laughs) that's a, that's a very eloquent way of describing Kubernetes. uh, Oh, I, and, 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 and the power of it. It's just, it does require a level of effort on the front end to be able to even get there. And so I, I feel like there's still a lot of companies, even SaaS-based companies, like, well, I don't know if I want to devote the time and the effort and the energy into it. But I'll say that it's it's been really, really good for us after we did it. But there was definitely a, a, a you know, a very level of effort to get us there. Yeah, yeah. And no, I imagine I was on a Twitter thread earlier today where someone was looking at Azure uh, app service environments where it's like a dedicated uh, app service environment within your VNet and they're super expensive. And I was like, well, if they want that level of control, wouldn't AKS make a lot of sense for them? And the person I was corresponding was, well, yeah, they are nowhere near ready to move over to Kubernetes. They were really just trying to push a web app real easy. And I'm like, eh, I mean, it's not that big of a difference, but I get it. I get it. <laughs> Baby steps, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. It, 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 it's, a, it's a fair statement, but I think, you know, it also depends on the architecture of what you're trying to do. If you have a fairly simple web app front end and you're not looking to, like, provide, I mean, we're actually providing platform as a service uh, in, a, in a way that is, you know, if it's a SaaS-based offering, something like App Service could work. But yeah, it is it is expensive. It's not not a, a cheap option. But I think that you know, <laughs> if, you, if you move a step up from that and you go AKS, so that's not cheap either. So no, that's true. That's also expensive. It scales, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm curious. What is the now that you've kind of pivoted a little bit and you're doing this playbook dot cloud thing uh, is that's also running on AKS. Yeah, so that's running on AKS and ACI. Actually, uh, CSAP is still running on on GKE. When we move to the next major version of CSAP, it will actually be on AKS as well. 
Okay. So I'm curious with AKS, uh, what sort of issues and challenges did you encounter when you were trying to build and deploy this service? Because I mean, AKS itself is, I think it's only a year or a year and some change into its GA. So we had a bunch of experience on uh, GKE. So mm-hmm. there were obviously some nuances with uh, how some of the features that we had to set up and configure and some of the requirements around the different services, you know, of an Azure, say load balancer versus load balancer on Google and so on and so forth. So there were, you know, obviously some inherent architectural pieces that we had to, to work out. But overall, it wasn't really that much more level of effort than what we were doing on GKE. And I, I feel like once you know Kubernetes, you go to a managed Kubernetes. And if you already know the cloud provider, it's really not that difficult to go one to another. That being said, I think you pick your cloud provider because you want to do something with them that's giving you some value, whether that's, you know, hey, I'm getting some you know high percentage off because I just signed up with a, a Microsoft EA agreement that's giving me a bunch of Azure <laughs> credits or something, right? Versus trying to pick which one because they all, you know, in AWS too, they all have a, a decent offering, um, but obviously Google's is the, the most seasoned mm-hmm. just because, you know, they, they came out with Kubernetes. They are Kubernetes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to a certain degree. Yeah, uh, that, that whole um, Kubernetes is a platform for platforms. That was actually Joe Beta said that. Uh, and, you know, he, he came from Google and now he's at VMware through Heptio, uh, which is a weird sort of transformation there. Yeah, so I think it's interesting that the promise of Kubernetes was sort of the fact that it is an abstraction, so you can run your applications wherever. And it's it's good to hear that you didn't have a, a ton of pain moving over to a different managed Kubernetes platform, because that is kind of the promise out there is, you know, if, wherever you want to run it, as long as it's Kubernetes, you'll be able to do it with a, a little bit of, of alteration. So was that generally your experience? And have you started trying to port... Uh, playbook.cloud over to like AWS or back to GKE? Yeah, so we we want to have, essentially, the long-term vision is we want to have the web app front end uh, to be able to be completely deployable into Kubernetes anywhere without having to even worry about whatever cloud provider it is. Mm-hmm. So if you want to deploy it in native Kubernetes to do that, you could do that in your own. Obviously, you could do that in a managed Kubernetes fashion, you know, with some of the the nuances of the uh, different services. And then the the backend piece that we have for the container sandboxing with ACI, that piece of it, yes, we absolutely are looking to be able to have that deployable in the other managed container around AWS Fargate and Google Cloud Run. But then also beyond that, we also just want to support that same technology in Kubernetes natively. And I think there's a major focus now on security and really trying to actually solve for some of the issues like I brought up earlier with hard multi-tenancy. And so I think that we're going to get there and probably sooner than later. And Hmm. so the the long-term vision is we want to just support Kubernetes um, natively. So you get all the value out of Kubernetes because there's some certain things that, you know, if you're using a cloud managed container service, that's not Kubernetes, then you have to do things like with Playbook.cloud, we had to create our own pool so you can get your own container from a pool. Because if not, we had to essentially have a cold start time because there's no image caching. So that was one pain point we had where it was like, oh, a user doesn't want to wait, you know, two, three, four minutes or or sometimes longer, depending (laughs) uh, on a a container just to run a, you know, just to run something in it. They want it to happen, you know, now. Right, (laughs) right. As as immediately as possible. And so we ended up (laughs) building our own pool around that. But, you know, with Kubernetes, we could do that and have it already built in and not even have to worry about it. So, yeah, there's definitely... 
certain things that we had to develop in order to make it make sense for us with ACI. But the security piece and the isolation piece of ACI uh, saved us so much that made sense to use it, at least for what playbook.cloud is now. But the, the longer term vision is that container sandboxing, we can bring into CSAP and which we're doing now. And then also uh, with playbook.cloud, we'd love to have it. So you could just, you know, you could pick whatever cloud provider you want and be able to deploy a container into your own environment and run it all day long. Because that's it's funny how, you know, while we're still cloud-based, everybody wants to be able to control the execution of what they're doing. And so they're looking <laughs> at like, hey, I, I was talking to a security company the other day and they're like, hey, we, we love what you're doing. We're completely fine that it's SaaS-based, but we need the container piece deployable uh, in our environment, possibly on site. And we're just like, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, that's a, a hybrid cloud approach, right? As, as right. people are looking for, uh, but even hybrid cloud to cloud, right? I want it in my own cloud environment. Oh, okay. Yeah, I want it behind the the VNet. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting model that uh, I know Microsoft kind of has a solution around that with managed applications, which is, I know uh, HashiCorp recently announced their um, managed console service. Uh, I forget mm -hmm. what the, exactly what they're calling it. It might just be HashiCorp managed console. <laughs> but uh, essentially the idea is they deploy it in your Azure subscription in a VNet, and they have access to that VNet to make changes uh, to their application and keep it patched, but they don't have access to anything else in your subscription, and you can peer your other VNets to that VNet to leverage console as a service. Would you ever envision something similar to that for uh, either CSAP or the playbook.cloud, or are you sticking more with uh, we stay outside of your network and just give you a container to run tools in? I would say <laughs> I like the other uh, architecturally because it makes it easier from a development effort from our standpoint. But <laughs> I would say that we have to also be very cognizant about what customers want and what they're requesting. And the number one thing right out of the gate when we when we launched Playbook with the cloud was, can I can I run this in my environment? Can I run? <laughs> I want to run this in mine. I don't. I I like what you're doing, but I don't. You know, I don't trust any vendor, including you. So it's like, right, right. right. Well, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and so yes to your the first part of your question, because I think that's where the key to all this is, is that if you can have a secure connection to be able to then have an execution environment to do something, it's kind of like, um, you know, CICD, except people are used to having CICD in the cloud, right? But now when it comes to the rest of the traditional IT workloads, we're talking about the same type of process, right? You're trying to run a job and being able to, um, to execute certain things somewhere else, but you're trying to do it in a way that you can have more control over it. And then I think that people view that as more, even more of the keys to their kingdom than even, you know, running, you know, releasing their own software. Um, Cause I think that that's been proven out and people do that, but I don't think that the entire industry as a whole is ready yet to embrace being able to take everything cloud-based um, from, from their traditional IT workloads. And so I think that's where a lot of the, the resistance we have comes from, and, and some of it's, you know, rightly so. I, I you know, it's it's you have to kind of step into giving control over of things um, to somebody else who's going to be able to provide you some value. But you know, whether that's a cloud provider or you know, like what we're building or any anything else, any other tools that are out there, um, people are very cognizant about security. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's part of where this whole hybrid cloud thing seems to come from is 
people are reluctant to put certain things up in the cloud, but they still want to be able to enjoy some connectivity to the cloud for specific services. And so that's where this hybrid cloud solution comes in is I'll keep the crown jewels on premises, but for certain other things or services, I will, you know, dip out to the cloud for that. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the landscape changes over the next three or four years. Another thing that you kind of, you put in the notes uh, for our discussion, uh, and this is uh, based on the announcements that just came out of HashiConf, is the GA of Terraform Cloud. So uh, is that something that is going to be, uh, well, first, can you kind of dive into what Terraform Cloud is a little bit? And then how does that play into your playbook.cloud offering? Yeah, absolutely. So the Terraform Cloud offering is what HashiCorp came out with because uh, a lot of companies didn't want to have to pay for Terraform Enterprise. I mean, the <laughs> number one feature that I, I see all the time out there is you know being able to have your state put into the cloud so you don't have mm-hmm. to deal with that from a remote machine. And then there's obviously a, a bunch of other features that give you uh, value and benefit to use it, but it was that was primarily it. And now with the new announcement, they're giving the ability to have teams so there can be an intermediary product. So it's not like I have to go from Terraform Cloud directly to Terraform Enterprise, they now have a model <laughs> in between. So it's like, all right, well, I can make that more palatable from a pricing perspective, because I think that was, you know, that's still a, a pain point for a lot of companies out there. Like, hey, I love mm-hmm. using Terraform, but I just have a tiny team. I don't need Enterprise. Right. And I, I got the impression that Enterprise was not cheap. Uh, no, no, of, they, no. They were they were targeting the Fortune 50, not not the uh, the SMBs. Yeah, okay. yeah, you had to have many, many commas in your uh, overall uh, uh, revenues to, to make it make sense. Yes. So how is that Terraform cloud sort of integrating with playbook.cloud? Yeah, so the cool thing about that is since we have an execution environment with the container piece of it, the last release we had, we actually added in uh, Terraform into the image. So you can actually run Terraform from an Ansible module. So there's actually an Ansible Terraform module. So you can run Terraform inside of the container, but you can still tie into Terraform Cloud to uh, store your state, or you can do it how everybody else is doing it and store it in a, you know, an S3 bucket or uh, an Azure Blob storage or something else. But that gives you that capability. So we can support Terraform inside of playbook.cloud right now, leveraging Ansible, essentially Ansible playbooks to execute Terraform through the Terraform module. And we have mm-hmm. Terraform built into the container image. So you get it right out of the box. Uh, inside of playbook.cloud. I gotcha. I gotcha. Going over to the architecture a little bit, I did have some questions about ACI because again, that's that's a relatively new service on Azure uh, and it's very different than AKS. So I actually haven't worked with it much. So what does ACI provide and, and how are you leveraging it? Yeah, so you can think about ACI as a really quick way to get a container with having everything essentially, almost everything abstracted away from a management perspective. So okay. you get the ability to, to have a container or multiple containers, but you don't get the benefits of AKS. So you're not going to be able to do you know, pooling and other things. So if you want to do anything more than just something super simple from a container standpoint, you're probably better off looking at AKS. ACI also has all of the security features built into it from a standpoint of I don't have to worry about somebody jumping out of that container into another container somewhere else. It's literally Hmm. just there and completely ephemeral. So I can do what I need to do and then kill off that container and that's it. And so ACI, because the the other product before that, I think that Microsoft is is killing off Azure Container Services, ACS. Yes, services. Um, 
ACI, because I uh, ACI is uh, uh, Kubernetes behind the scenes with everything abstract, as far as I've been told. So. Oh, okay. So they're actually using AKS. Well, maybe they're using AKS or something else in the There's background. Something they're doing. Yeah. Their but own the only flavor. thing they're exposing to you is the ability to say, "I need X number of containers running this image." Go. Yeah. Exactly. Pretty much. You, you can still, you know, you can still create your own images. You can use the Azure Container Registry. So it gives you all that that capabilities. But it's yeah, it's a very limited type of use case where I just, you know, I need a, a single container. I need a few containers, but I don't need all the power of Kubernetes. And it works really, really, really well for simple type of implementations or architectures like we just needed for the the container sandboxing piece. Okay. So, you know, a a customer who gets into a container sandbox, um, is there a special way you're reducing wait times or preloading the image so the containers spin up really fast? Because I got to imagine the the thing that takes the longest is pulling that image from a a repository. Yes, that was pretty painful at the beginning. And and, and funny, you know, I'm a part of Azure Advisor. So, you know, obviously I was asking one of my questions to the broader community, hey, you know, what are we going to be doing about this? And the response was, well, that is actually something that's been requested by a lot of different organizations. So we're, we're road mapping image caching. We're like, okay, cool. When's that happening? Oh, well, we <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> okay, fine. So we're going to have to go develop our own way to solve this. And so uh, we ended up building out a, uh, a pool, essentially, where instead of, because right now it's a one user to one mapping to a container. And so mm-hmm. if you wanted to get a container on our original beta build, you would essentially go in, you'd, you'd, uh, you could start up your container and then you'd have to wait and it would build. I mean, we obviously had Ansible and everything built into the container, but it still had to, you know, it's had to build out everything and get it up and running in order for you to connect to it. So that took, you know, sometimes, you know, three, four minutes or longer mm. to actually get up and running. So you had to sit there and wait until you could run something. Then we were like, okay, well, let's, let's look at how we could solve this from a pool perspective so we could have a pool of containers. And so we essentially had to create a pool and a, a uh, an algorithm around it so that we knew how many containers need to be available and be able to scale that out dependent upon how many active users are in, in the system with containers. And then also mapping how long a container took to spin up in order to get it up and running because you still had the you know, three, four, five minute time to spin it up. But if it's just in a pool, then we're fine with having an N plus whatever pool capacity so that we can ensure that at any point in time, we could give users... Uh, a container, which is almost immediately, because now it's less around, less a little less than ten seconds uh, pulling okay. it from the pool versus minutes of time before. Right, right. That's that's similar to the amount of time it takes to pull up Azure Cloud Shell, is you know about you know five seconds, five to ten seconds usually. Except if you're using the uh, the old PowerShell one that was Windows based, man, that thing took forever. But they killed that. That's gone. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of uh, Windows containers. Uh, I know you know when they when they became out and they and there even something that existed. It was just thinking, you know, how many companies out there that have their stuff built on, you know, .NET or uh, are going to refactor their stuff and want to leverage a Windows container? And funny enough, with .NET Core, a lot of people are just like, ah, I don't even want to deal with that. I'll just use Linux containers for what I need to do. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to go through the pain of refactoring to do .NET Core or whatever, why wouldn't you just move it to Linux too? Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's available still. You can still get Windows containers, but it's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, and I think it's supported in uh, Kubernetes now too. One point fourteen or one point fifteen brought uh, support for Windows containers, so that's that's in there if you want to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who who's using it? That's yeah, that's a, an interesting. 
That'd be an interesting survey. That'd be an interesting survey to to see who's using Windows containers. Yes, if any of the listeners out there are uh, using Windows containers, let me know. I'd love to have you on the show and just hear more about your use case and the challenges around that. (laughs) Uh, That'll be an awesome podcast. I'd love to I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Uh, as you're looking towards the future, what what do you envision changing from an architecture standpoint, and also from a like functionality uh, use case standpoint? From a functionality standpoint of Playbook.Cloud specifically, one of the things that we found is people want to be able to uh, have the ability to connect their container via a VPN. And then also have an external IP address for access. So if they want to hit the box, they can, or or the container. Um, but then also if they want to be able to just connect via a VPN, again, it's, it goes back to all this hybrid cloud. Everybody <laughs> wants the ability to, you know, it's, it's hey, this is cool. It's all cloud-based, but how do I connect into all the other systems I have? Because I'm not 100% cloud-based and I have no idea when I'll ever get there. So <laughs> this, right. this, this doesn't make sense until I'm, I'm there, unless you can add some functionality to help bridge that gap over the time frame that it takes to be sure. able to get there. So I think that's definitely one of the main features. And the other piece to everything that we're looking at is, you know, as we, as we continue to get customer feedback and, and what people want and, and finding out, you know, it's, it's more about being able to make the tools that are already out there and support them in a way that people can utilize. Because I think there's, you know, there's a lot of tools out there that, you know, may be enterprise focused and, and work for, particular use cases. For example, you know, if you have Ansible, you can use Ansible Tower, you know, which works for a lot of enterprises, but it's just Ansible. And so if what I want to use Ansible plus Terraform, and then I start building on my tool chain or Ansible Terraform and inspect and Ansible Terraform and, you know, pick your tool, right? Because, you know, usually chaining, you know, multiple tools together when you're trying to build stuff out. And so it becomes one of those things where it's how, how do you make that easier for an organization to be able to uh, build and get the outcomes of what they're trying to. Because at the end of the day, everybody wants to just build a solution. They're like, hey, I, I have this problem. I need this outcome. And I need to build something around it to be able to get to that outcome. And so, you know, obviously, the tools that are out there in the DevOps community are really well proven. Um, they have a, amazing communities behind them and just a lot of people using them. And so, uh, but at the same time, those tools as they stand are, uh, geared towards a certain type of individual out there, you know, a DevOps engineer or a, a you know an SRE or you know people that understand um, both the ops side and the dev side. And so, as we see this entire industry move towards the future, it's what I like to call IT as code, and that's kind of my mantra, which is we have all these traditional IT workloads moving towards you know being able to codify them or deploy them programmatically. And how do we get there in such a way that we can enable and empower the existing ops guys out there, or security teams or service providers who may themselves not be a DevOps guy or SRE or have those guys on staff. And so, you know, my view of the future is I think we can bridge that gap, but those people learn a certain way, which is very visual versus, you know, living in code, which is, you know, all the, the you know, <laughs> DevOps guys. And so I think, you know, bridging that gap, but it's a very difficult problem because you're trying to take existing tools that DevOps guys can just pick up and say, hey, look, I have no problem you know, building out what I need to and getting the end result and the outcomes that I'm looking for. But that's not the case for a very large portion of you know, IT overall. And so I think that that's where I'm looking at longer term is you know, how, do we, how do we make that possible for them as people are shifting everything to the public cloud and wanting to embrace these tools? Because I think at the end of the day, it's, it's only going to get more complicated as we essentially 
everything becomes more software defined. And, uh, and, and so it's not going to be easier. It's only going to be harder. So there's a lot of benefits to going to the public cloud, but there's also a lot of complexities that that are now in place that you didn't have in your on-premise or data center deployments. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably a good note to end on. If you had to summarize some, you know, key points or lessons learned for the listeners, uh, what would they be? I would say, don't be afraid of cloud. <laughs> you can get into <laughs> cloud. <laughs> it's definitely something you should embrace, but also it's not something I think you should work it towards a phased approach, right? Figure out mm-hmm. some small little pilot project that you can take into the cloud and start from there. I mean, a lot of companies are already using cloud through services like O365, and you're probably doing disaster recovery with some cloud-based component. Beyond that, it becomes a, what are you trying to do inside of the public cloud? And it's also dependent upon what your initiatives are. If you're an enterprise versus you know, service provider, what does that look like as well? Or an SMB who's relying on a service provider. So I say getting into the cloud, being able to have a small pilot project and getting the end result of what you're looking for, some sort of outcome to say, hey, yep, this worked. I proved it out and let me move on to the next step. And the same thing with tools. Don't be afraid of the tools that are out there either. They're not all super easy to get into, depending upon what your technical capabilities are. But they're definitely easier than uh, creating your own code from scratch, your tools, <laughs> building them, you know, from uh, coding them from scratch, right? So there's, there's right. Uh, you know, incremental steps up. And so I would say, you know, embrace the tools that are out there because I think that they're, uh, you know, they're only getting better and the communities are only growing behind them. And so it's an awesome place to live in a world where you can get access to open source tools that you don't have to to pay for and you can have a huge community behind them. Right. Absolutely. If people want to know more about you and what you're up to, where could they look? Where could they find you? You can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is IT as code. I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, you can look me up under IT as code or Michael Frazier under refactor. And uh, our website is refactor, R-E-F-A-C-T-R dot IT. Or, and you can also go to playbook.cloud if you want to check out uh, playbook.cloud as well. Awesome. Sounds good. I, I encourage listeners to do so. I checked it out and it's pretty cool stuff. Michael Frazier, thanks so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. Thanks for having me, Ned. Really appreciate it. Thanks to Mike for appearing on Day 2 Cloud and thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Day 2 Cloud is available via iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. So if you like what you hear, please rate and subscribe. If you have suggestions for future shows, I'd love to hear them. Hit me up on Twitter, Ned1313, or fill out the form on my website, nedinthecloud.com. If you'd like to hear more entertaining and educational content, then I encourage you to check out the other podcasts on the Packet Pushers Network, especially my favorites, Data Knots and Network Break. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs>